Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human story behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today my guest is Sir Ian Livingstone, games pioneer, entrepreneur and the best-selling author of the Fighting Fantasy book series. Widely regarded as one of the founding fathers of the UK games industry, Ian co-founded Games Workshop in 1975 with Steve Jackson, launching Dungeons and Dragons in Europe. Warhammer, White Dwarf, Citadel Miniatures, and the Games Workshop retail chain. Whilst he exited the company in 1991, he soon embarked on a hugely successful career in the video games industry. In 1995, he co-led the merger, which created video games publisher Eidos, where he served as executive chairman, launching blockbuster titles such as Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, and Hitman. In this conversation, we discuss his brilliant book, Dice Men, the origin story of Games Workshop, how games like Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons came to be, the evolution of gaming, and why he set up his own school, the Livingstone Academy. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Ian, and I'm sure you will enjoy listening. So here is my conversation with Sir Ian Livingstone. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. With all my guests, I like to start right at the beginning. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up? Well, I was an only child and my parents were only children. So uh, I had to use my imagination to entertain myself. But um, so I used to like reading stories and adventures of the mind. But I think I was a a good child in the main. Um, I was very curious about the world and loved games, of course. I started off playing Monopoly and chess as a child, and um, and that really got me into my whole love of of games and and also the power of play. And talking about the power of play, you were obviously such a big gamer that at school you were playing lots of board games. And I think isn't that how you ended up finding your friends and then co-founder Steve Jackson and John Peake? Yeah, we were all at um, Olsen Grammar School in Cheshire, as it was, and we hung out together through through music and we all had Lambretta scooters and um, we had a common love of board games. And uh, yeah, that's how we started. But we all went our separate ways after school. And, but we met back up in London and that's how Games Workshop started. It's so interesting looking back because in your book, Dice Men, obviously you give the full story of your life and what led to starting Games Workshop. And it's really interesting the part that different people play and, and how in many cases they return into your life feel like it was fate. At school, you were nicknamed Feed. Can you explain? Because when I heard that, I was thinking, well, it must be something to do with food. But there's more to it. What's the story behind that? Well, whilst I love food, and it has nothing to do with food, because (laughs) we used to play Monopoly a lot at school, and um, I used to win a lot. And I used to wind up the other players, but if I owned the small properties like Old Kent Road and Whitechapel, if they landed on it, I wouldn't bother to collect the rents just to annoy them and just say, oh, well, it's chicken feed. I don't need that kind of money. So chicken feed got kind of narrowed down to feed. And that was my nickname for a while. So I was at school. That's funny. As I said earlier, there were people that started in your life and came back into your life. And, and Steve Jackson and John Peake were two of those who ended up being such a pivotal group, the three of you. After school, as you said, you went your separate ways. Now, I understand that school wasn't the greatest for you and you didn't end up doing a degree, but you ended up finding each other in London. Can you tell us the story about that? Yeah, I, was a, I wouldn't say I was a rebel at school. I was a bit of an nonconformist. I didn't like the, the way we were taught and, and it was very traditional and um, kind of kicked against that, I guess. And so um, the head teacher said to me, so surprised that most of Passed my O-levels as they were, GCSEs as they are today, enough to get me into sixth form to do A-levels. And I said, Livingstone, I know you uh, passed your uh, examinations, but don't you think you're better off working in a garage or something? I mean, he only liked his little academics. He wants to do Greek or mm. Latin and stuff. He didn't like anything that's to do with the arts or creativity, clearly. But um, I decided that work was really not for me at that point. So I went to Stockport College of Technology and did an HND in business studies and diploma in marketing, which in fact was really 
useful for when we started Games Workshop. Steve went to Keele University and John went to Nottingham University, but we all met back up in London over time. And um, we shared a flat together and got back to playing games together. What's interesting is in your book, you talk a lot about those days and what it was like. And I think you said that, you know, none of you kind of were earning that much and you're all just playing games again. So it's like you continued from those young children into those young adults playing games as a theme. When did you decide to start something? Because the bit, one of the things that I loved in the book is when you were talking about, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll talk about the newsletters that kind of kicked it all off. But one thing that I loved in the book is when you said, it never seems like the right time to start a business. There is always a good reason to put off the big decision to go it alone. Jumping into the unknown in the 1970s during a period of economic stagnation could be viewed as foolhardy, but we were too young to worry about that, which I thought was fantastic because that's the thing about starting a, any kind of business. Naivety on the side of the founders is usually a good thing. But let's go back a bit. Let's talk about the newsletter because I think this is how things really started. So it was um, Owl and Weasel, but before that, was there, there was another one, wasn't there? No, Owl and Weasel was the first newsletter. We, okay. we were playing board games uh, in our flat because it was a cheap way of entertainment without having to go out. And we used to think, could we possibly turn our hobby of, of playing games into some sort of embryonic business and John had actually made backgammon boards after we'd been on holiday together in, in Greece the year before. And he said, well, I could make some more. He was selling them to his workmates. And, um, I said, well, I'll try and sell them to shops. So that kind of got the idea of creating this games company. But then we said, how do we reach out to people? So we decided to publish this newsletter, Alan Weasel, and we printed 50 copies, um, sent them out to everybody we knew in games. And one copy, don't know how it happened, but found its way all the way to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where it was read by Gary Gygax, unbeknownst to us, had just invented a game called Dungeons and Dragons. And he wrote to us and said, love your magazine. Um, here's this new game I've invented. What do you think? And it didn't look much, a pretty plain box with a very average illustration on the cover. And there was no board inside, but when you open that box, it opened up your imagination like no game had ever done before. And I don't think any game ever will again in that it was a role-playing game. The very first of its kind, whereby one person would design a labyrinth of rooms and passageways and populate them with monsters and treasure. And the other players would assume roles of like heroes and wizards and clerics. And through conversation, theater on the fly, they would explore the dungeons, killing monsters, finding treasure and leveling up. And this was an incredibly new way of playing uh, this, this role playing. And Steve and I became immediately obsessed with this game, thought this, this, this is just a milestone in gaming history. We just played it incessantly. And so we ordered six copies of D and D and on the back of that particularly small order. Gygax and his, his two directors gave us a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for the whole of Europe because they were delighted to have a European distributor, even though it was just speak eyes in a flat in Shepherd's Bush. But did he know that? Because when you ordered the six copies, were you asking to be the distributor or did he just think, okay, well, these guys obviously like the game, they can do it. What, what, did, he, what did he know about you? He knew very little. Clearly there's no internet, so he couldn't <laughs> check this <laughs> <laughs> and obviously no mobile phone, so there wasn't any kind of search potential about, about Games Workshop. It was just a part-time business on the third floor flat in Shepherd's Bush. We didn't even have a phone in our flat and we didn't have any money. We had our enthusiasm and we started selling it through mail order through Island Weasel. And it, the, the sales just built up and we would see people milling around on the street. <laughs> looking for this shop because we called the company Games Workshop. Of course, there wasn't a shop. He was over the window, up here, mate, and come and get your games. And they were very, very happy to walk away with a box copy of D&D because it was like finding treasure. I can imagine. Do you know, because I, I know you dedicate the book, uh, your Diceman book to him, uh, to Gary, and I know he obviously had a profound impact on your life. Do you know the story behind him starting Dungeons & Dragons? Like what gave him the idea for it? Because it was so novel. Well, he, he, he develops it with another guy called Dave Arneson and Gary was a prolific gamer, a raconteur, larger than life. He made things happen. 
And the he'd written a set of rules called Chamber, which were tabletop battles using miniatures with a with a fantasy supplement. And Dave Arneson had been working on a sort of role playing idea, but hadn't really formulated into anything. So, so the two of them playing together came up with this role playing concept. But Gary was the the person who actually wrote up it into a set of rules, and subsequently published that in box format as D and D, as it became to be known. Fantastic. So he was really the the power behind the game. Mm. And then, so you become, unwittingly, you guys become the distributors for Europe, which obviously ends up doing pretty well. You open the Games Workshop, I think it, you launched on the 1st of April, 1978. And I've seen a picture that you posted on Twitter. So we're now at 45 years since you opened it. But at 40 years, you posted a picture on Twitter of the queue outside Games Workshop. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, Going from just being kind of a low-key distributor from a flat, like you said, where there's no, not even any signage, no phone, to actually opening a shop, what was that leap like? And how did you make it happen? Because I don't think funding, I understand you went to a bank and that didn't go very well, did it? Well, between 75 and 78, a few things happened. Um, first of all, Steve and I decided to go full-time. John decided not to. Um, it was... He wanted to stay as, as in his profession as a civil engineer. So Steve and I left the flat and we went to the United States to meet Gary Gygax. It was a kind of three-month road trip before we got there, but that's, that's perhaps another story. And we got there, we signed up all the fledgling games companies as well, because we were going around telling everyone who we were the D&D distributors for Europe and um, we should distribute their games as well. But we didn't have anywhere to live and we didn't have an office, but we were masquerading as these distributors of role-playing games. So we came back to the UK. We'd posted the shipment of the games that we'd ordered to my girlfriend's flat, although she wasn't very happy to receive all these boxes. <laughs> and then we went to the bank and said, look, we're the distributors of Dungeons & Dragons, the role-playing game where you kill monsters and find treasure, go these fantastic journeys of the mind, will you give us £10,000? And he looked at us rather like a dog watching television, had no understanding whatsoever what we were talking about us to leave. But in his defense, we weren't exactly investor ready. We didn't have any investment deck or cash flow projections or anything, but all we had was our enthusiasm. So that meant we had to live in a van for three months because we'd managed to hire a small flat at the back of the stage agent where we could operate out of, but we couldn't afford an office rental and a flat rental. So we joined a squash club nearby and had this very small triangular life of getting out of the van about seven or eight in the morning, going into the squash club for a shave and a shower, et cetera. Got really good at squash by default and then into the small office at the back of the stage and doing our mail orders until they finally got fed up with us all because the business was increasing and they said, you're going to have to leave. So where, where do you want to go? I said, well, we need a, really need a flagship store for all this business that's building. And they said, well, we'll find you a shop. And being the stage agents, they did. And that's where they found it in Dalling Road, Hammersmith. And that's how we came to open our first shop in 1978, largely because of the resistance of other retailers to take the stock that we had on offer. Isn't it interesting? There's quite a thread with all of your kind of early career at Games Workshop where these things happen, either like by accident or luck, it seems. Obviously, a lot of it is down to your sharpness and knowing the market and the people that you're marketing to and I think it, but even just thinking back to the higher education you got like you said about the business and the marketing and how useful that ended up what I wanted to say about that particular picture was when I looked at Twitter and read the comments now this is a company that's gone on to I think have a valuation on the stock exchange of like three billion pounds which first of all is something that needs to be celebrated but the thing that really kind of stood out from these comments were how many people felt that the game and the Games Workshop actually shaped their lives. And not only just people who were like obviously into gaming and found it fantastic that they could they'd save up their pocket money and go, and there was all these wonderful stories like that. But there were so many people talking about how it shaped their career paths. I mean, obviously, when you first started, you can't have had any clue what impact it would have. We had absolutely no idea. And when only humbled and delighted that it happened, but I meet people all the time now in their forties and some in their fifties who said that, you know, having played our games and particularly reading our fighting fantasy game books, that it, it got them through dark periods in their life and it gave them a meaning when they were a child and they loved the engagement of being the hero in our books and, and how it helped form their 
them to become the people that they were, whether it's being in creative industries or, or, or whatever career they chose that the games and the books that we created were very formative in establishing them. And that was really amazing to hear. I mean, I gave a talk yesterday and, um, about five people came up over afterwards and said, thank you so much. I wouldn't have done this without you. That's quite a legacy to, to leave behind, isn't it? It's so wonderful. Like I said, the comments were amazing. Okay, so in 1978, you opened the Games Workshop, but also the kind of exclusive three-year deal that you had with distributing Dungeons and Dragons came to an end. In the book, you detail this moment where I think Gary had sent someone over to the UK to convince you to merge companies. Obviously, it had been going well, and yep. that's the kind of future he saw. What happened, and why did you choose not to? Well, we were the obviously the exclusive distributor of Dungeons and Dragons, but at the time we were young, independent, young Brits and didn't particularly want to spend half our life in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And also we didn't want to give up our own business in a merger. And we didn't get on that well with Gary's fellow directors, although we really, really liked Gary a lot. He was a great friend and they were very similar people. So we said no to that merger and thought we could go it alone. So we remained the largest distributor of Dungeons and Dragons at the time, but not the exclusive distributor. And then you realize how valuable owning intellectual property is. And that's how we set about designing our own board games, um, games like Talisman and Apocalypse and others. And, but it wasn't until Warhammer came about that we really had a huge success. And that really came out of Citadel Miniatures or or miniatures factory up in, in Nottingham at the time. And it was designed by three of the people there, Richard Halliwell, Brian Ansell, and Rick Priestley. I wanted to ask you actually about the story about Warhammer, because when I've spoken to people and I'm talking about my kids, friends, parents, and people like that, and said, oh, I'm interviewing Ian Livingston, you'd be amazed how Warhammer is the thing that, I mean, obviously you're well known to lots of people for various parts of your career, but Warhammer is something that really sticks out. And it's not died down, the same as your book, Fighting Fantasy series. It's just, these are things that have such longevity. So I, we're going to jump around because you just mentioned Warhammer. I thought, can you actually tell me the story behind how Warhammer came to be? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't <laughs> have any design input in Warhammer, but we enabled it to happen effectively is that it was designed by, from an idea from, from Brian Ansell, who was managing director of Citadel Miniatures, which was owned by Games Workshop. And he had this idea for a mass combat battle because with Dungeons and Dragons, all the miniatures are, are in single units. You're role-playing as one character and you're usually meeting one or two monsters. So that didn't really enable the sale of lots of miniatures, which was obviously the motivation of, of Brian and the Citadel. So he wanted to create a tabletop set of rules that required people to have lots of miniatures because you're fighting units of battles and regiments. So the idea originally was to actually give away a set of rules as a flyer effectively with mail orders. But as they brought in Richard Halliwell and Rick Priestley, they evolved it into a pretty amazing set of rules and thought, well, this should be a standalone product in itself. And that's really how Warhammer, the first iteration came out in 1983. And tell me, what was the landscape like? Because like I said to you before we started recording, I wasn't actually a gamer. I think we did have a computer at one stage later on, but we didn't even have many board games. I think we had like Trivial Pursuit and Monopoly, but what was the landscape like for gaming, board games, etc. at that time? And when Warhammer came out, how was it received? Well, the landscape was... Effectively in two parts, there was the family games, the monopolies, the triple pursuits, et cetera, as you mentioned, but we were totally immersed in what we called hobby games at the time, games that require you to play for quite long periods of time with people who like games that are not just answering questions or just rolling the dice and hoping for the best. This was a game where you actually immerse yourself in, in the activity, a bit like Model Railways evolved, you, you buy a with it, with Warhammer or Dungeons and Dragons, you'd buy a rule book or some miniatures and you do some painting of the miniatures or you buy White Dwarf magazine to find out about new rules and new developments and just immerse yourself in the hobby of, of role play. So this is like a, effectively a separate ecosystem, but it was growing 
by the early eighties, you know, workshop was well on its way. Um, and so through its role-playing games, its board games, and then of course, Warhammer. So it started off quite slow as anything does, um, because it's pre-internet day. So as everything was done through word of mouth or, or ab traditional advertising or promoting in white dwarf magazine. Um, but it, it, it took off relatively quite quickly. And so the first 3000 copies sold out very quickly. Brian immediately set about raising the production values of it, making all the corrections. And then the red box version two came out not long after the first one. And of course that went on to ultimately Warhammer 40 K, which became the blockbuster IP that underpins the whole value of games workshop today. It's amazing. Um, tell me, because around the same time, I think it was in 1982, you start working on the fighting fantasy books. And like I said, yeah. again, before we start recording, there's so many elements to your career. That's why I love Dicemen. By the way, the, one of my favorite things in Dicemen are the photos, which makes me sound like I'm not actually reading it. I did read it, but it's so unique to have such wonderful and colorized photos of different parts of that whole company journey from the very beginning. You alluded to that kind of summer three-month trip earlier as well. There's some photos from that. It really does take you back. It's so fantastic to see. But anyway, going back to these fighting fantasy books, 1982, I think you released the first one, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which you co-wrote yeah. with Steve. Yeah. How did they come to be? And tell me about the process of writing them, because I know that you're still writing them now. Well, we used to run Games Days at Workshop which was an annual event where people come along and play over games who wanted to play, particularly D&D &D at the time in 1979. And we had other trade stands at Games Day, one of which was Penguin Books and an editor called Geraldine Cook. And she came over to Steve and I and said, I'm absolutely enthralled by the enthusiasm that people have and the passion for playing role-playing games. Would you like to write a book about the hobby of role-playing games? And we just said <laughs> straight off the cuff, well, rather than writing a book about the hobby, why don't you write a book that allows you to experience a hobby, to experience a role-playing game? And she said, oh, that's a splendid idea. Please send me in a synopsis, which we did, which we called The Magic Quest. And Geraldine, synopsis in hand, went to senior management, who apparently laughed so hard at the idea of a interactive book that, that one of them banged their head on the table. Um, so it's preposterous that you can't possibly have a book that is interactive with branching narrative and a game system attached to it. So no, but Geraldine amazingly stuck to her guns and, and fought our corner. And ultimately she convinced the Puffin division of, of Penguin Books to, to publish the Wall of Firetop Mountain. So once she got the green light, we went away and, and, and began writing it. And then we realized how it what it is to actually write one of these books, because obviously you have to have an overarching story arc, um, and then you had to set about creating the branching. So did it by writing effectively a flow chart. Um, so reference number one splits into three ways. So it goes to number 22, number 164 and 276. And you write that on the flow chart, annotate, make notes of what happens at each of those choices. And occasionally it would keep splitting on you, but then yeah, that would go exponential problem for you if it kept on splitting. So you have to kind of bring back the story to various pinch points whereby to give readers essential information and also to, to make sure it doesn't go off and it doesn't ever come back. But the processes of, of writing actively several stories at once and making sure when you come to a door, you need a key. So you have to go back earlier in the story and put the key in a box that you have to write into the story where they can find this key and then be able to open the door later on. So it's, these are books effective. The reason they were so popular because mostly books are a passive experience. And this is an interactive experience where you, the reader or the hero, you make the choices. And that was very powerful. That choice is powerful and. And given agency of uh, that choice, children love them. And when Warlock Firetop Mountain came out, they had no promotion whatsoever from Penguin because they didn't really understand what an interactive book was. So it was the word in the playgrounds, the power of people recommending it to each other, which got the, the series off to a flying start. 
and Penguin were delighted, but they reprinted it 11 times in the first month because they still didn't have a deep belief in it. Then Geraldine came on and said, we need two more. So Steve wrote Citadel of Chaos and I wrote Forest of Doom. And this is not something you anticipated. Like you'd been working at Games Workshop. How did you even come up with the idea? So she approaches you at this event, which again, actually, I was going to say the newsletter and the events, which I've read about in the book, are so brilliant and such a brilliant way of marketing. But when she approached you and said, oh, you know, I want you to write a book. Had you and Steve even discussed writing a book before this? Or was it an idea that just kind of came to you? Well, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of writing. I was editing White Dwarf magazine at the time. And, uh, but had you, you hadn't written any books, had you? No. Nothing seemed like a problem at that time. When you're young, you just say, yeah, great idea, we'll do it. So, uh, so we did it. But when they came out, there was an awful lot of criticism because society didn't then and still struggle sometimes to understand the, the value of play. Mm. And because you call it a high-defensive game book, they think it's trivial at best and harmful, possibly. There was an eight-page warning guide put out by the Evangelical Alliance saying that because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're going to get possessed by the devil. There was petitions sent in saying they were harmful for children's imaginations. At the same time, teachers were saying, actually, these books are amazing. They're great for reluctant readers. They're great for critical thinking. And they got a whole generation of children reading. And, yeah, and they sold 20 million copies globally and published into 25 languages and, you know, over 35 countries. They were phenomenal success um, because of that empowerment of choice of the reader. That's the thing. A lot of the kind of areas that you've worked in are pretty novel at the time, or were at least. Talking about education, and I read that it increased the literacy, like you said, of many children of that generation. And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about how the fact that in this country, we start children at school at like four years old and how Sweden and places like that are completely different. And, you know, they start at seven and the kind of more formative years pre-seven are all spent playing. I know that you care about this quite deeply. What is to you the importance of play? Why do, because I think gaming, video games and books, like you said, still sometimes get a bad rep because there's all these people that say, oh, it's bad for children. They need to be outdoors and they need to be playing. But then there are children that might not be sporty or reading books to escape and go into other realms where it's absolutely fantastic. What do you say to people that are negative about? So what did you say, for instance, when this seven page criticism came out? What was your argument to it? Well, our argument is if, if, it, if books get children reading... That should be a good thing. And if it motivates them to want to start writing their own books or doing their own illustrations, that's also a good thing. And the fact that it did increase literacy has to be surely a good thing. And if we're told that in, because of the puzzle solving in there and, and navigating the branch of narrative is good for critical thinking and algorithmic thinking, surely that's a good thing. So let's accept that these are actually good for cognitive improvements. And so people who criticize games, I always say, well, part of your prejudice in talking about video games here, part of your prejudice against one or two titles that children shouldn't be playing. And by the way, are 18 rated like films and they just to be told by the parents, you shouldn't play that. If you think cognitively what's happening when you're playing a game, video or board game, they require you to problem solve. You cannot get through a game without problem solving. It's not a passive entertainment like film and TV. You learn intuitively, um, you're not punished for making a mistake. you you can fail in a safe environment. Whereas in an examination, it's a moment in time where you're, you're tasked with remembering and regurgitating some facts. And if you get enough right, you're judged as able and you can go to university, but if you don't, you're judged as less able and effectively a failure. And that's, that is just an. Yeah, a moment in time, and it kind of sets your course for life of thinking that you're a failure. Whereas in a game, it encourages you to play again. And over time, everyone can be a winner. So if you're playing a game like Rollercoaster Tycoon, effectively a management simulation, um, you're constructing the world, so you're understanding the physics of the world. You're setting the prices of the rise that you built, the economy there, therefore. And then the staffing levels required to run those rides. And if you do it right, Great. And if you don't, you're not suddenly a failure. You tweak the parameters. So over time, everyone can be a winner and we all learn at different speeds. And just because we learn different speeds to make one person a failure and another or not. So 
you know, that, that allows everyone to become a winner in their own minds. And games like Minecraft, effectively digital Lego, a child is constructing and learning by doing, and therefore if they apply the heat of a, of a furnace in the game to silica sand, they create glass and they take that glass and they put it in their environments and they won't forget that because they've done it themselves. And that sort of learning by doing is so powerful to engage for much deeper uh, learning and, and memory. And if you think about <laughs> when you're next flying to some distant location on holiday, or whatever, how the pilot learned to fly. Would you prefer that they learn by reading a book and memorizing the facts of how to apply or using simulation software, which effectively a game without the scoring? Mm -hmm. And same for surgeons, where they use simulation software to operate with any dire consequences. So games are you know, simulations of real world events and allow people to do stuff and share and play with other people in, a, in an enjoyable way. So why can't learning be more fun? So. I'm not saying education should be about playing games, but you take the principles of games-based mechanics and apply them in a cross-curricular way to learning and trying to contextualize knowledge and apply knowledge rather than just knowledge for knowledge's sake. So I think it's important to have skills as well as qualifications and know-how as well as knowledge. And you can do that in a gaming environment. I could not agree more with you. Everything, when I was reading up about you and some of your views on this, I was nodding my head in agreement because I've always had a problem. Even when I was a child, I could see that those that did well in exams were just those that had good memories and how they didn't necessarily understand what they were, as, I, as you said, regurgitating. And I never understood why we judge someone's intellect on, in one hour on one particular day. You know, and I, the whole thing really winds me up that we're still doing the same thing and treating children the same way. So one of my questions is actually going to be to you, how would you reimagine education? But then I saw that you have actually opened Livingstone Academy. And I wanted to ask you, while we're here talking about education, it makes sense to ask you about that. What was your dream for that school? Because obviously it's different to what, how you and I were taught. It's different from traditional education. Well, you have to backtrack a little bit to how I got to that stage, really. Um, when I was chairman of IDOS, when I moved into video games and we launched Thorocroft, Tomb Raider, and a whole bunch of other very successful titles. And the business was expanding. And, and I used to whinge to Ed Vasey, who was the culture minister at the time, that was simply not enough software engineers, arts and anim animators, or high enough quality to serve the gaming industry alone, let alone all the other creative industries and traditional industries that were, were booming at the time and required you know, digital making skills. So he said, well, you need to write a review and he got Nestor on board to fund it. We did seven Ipsos Murray reviews and of ICT education. And we realized that the problem wasn't actually in the universities. It started in school because in the 1980s, the BBC micro was a cornerstone of computing in schools. They already had a, a Sinclair spectrum, both programmable computers. And you put the programmable computer into the hand of a creative nation. Hey, presto, one of the outputs of that is video games. But over time, those computers kind of died a death as along came Microsoft and school said, oh, well, we'll just get kids to learn ICT skills, which is largely Word, PowerPoints, and Excel. So they, they were using other people's software rather than building their own software. So children ended up being in the passenger seats of technology rather than the driver's seats. So they could play a game, they couldn't make a game, they could use a website, couldn't build a website. So that was effectively like teaching children how to read, but not how to write. So our recommendation in, in NextGen, our two main recommendations, one, to have computer science on the national curriculum as a central discipline, and to have the arts included in the eBay because the arts have been marginalized, which seems to me crazy, given we're such a creative nation. You know, they don't actually count, they're simply a nice to have. And if we want a, more of a polymath approach to, to learning, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, the world's best painter ever, of course, was also an engineer and a mathematician. You had to join up the right side of your brain, to the left side of your brain. So I think the arts, it's not just arts for art's sake, it's, it's in, it encourages diverse thinking, self-determination, and you'll find best engineers and everybody in, in top professional life are usually good at something or have a great interest in the arts. And yet 
we don't have it in the curriculum. So that was observation number one. So we finally convinced the government to put coding on the curriculum, which came into force in English schools in 2014, but sadly it still remains a bit of a dry science and the project work, which is so important and part of the school that in, in Bournemouth is that why doesn't that not count for in the examination? So you can pass in GCSE is a effectively a, a modern language GCSE without being able to speak a word of it. And then you also have to memorize huge amounts of, of poems to pass on English literature. It just seems to be kind of missing the point. So that's the way training kids to become great at quiz night rather than having skills and being work ready and world ready. So the idea of the school was to be a flagship for most of the recommendations in, in next gen. Clearly I have no business or skills me as a road school. So I teamed up with Aspirations Academies Trust and they said, they said to me, well, we'd, we'd heard you speak. We'd love to, to operate you to a school in this, in this way. So we created a new curriculum, but we still have to serve the national curriculum in a state school. We still have to do eight GCSEs, but the way we do it is hopefully in a more engaged way, more collaboration, more cross-curricular multidisciplinary approach to learning and, and engage within industry to try and contextualize the learning and using a lot of digital making skills and coding so they can visualize something, design it, and then perhaps do some 3D printing and of the ideas that they've created and, and working in teams because we're all different. If you look at any workplace, we work in teams, we all do different things, but together we do great stuff. But in traditional way of teaching, it's all siloed subjects, learning in, and being tested in, in silos. So there's no suggestion of team in the school other than in sports. So I think learning should be, should be a connected thing too. I absolutely agree. I want to go back just quickly because we, we started on a path down education, but there was another quote that I thought was really poignant in the book. When it, you're talking about the sale of Games Workshop, yeah. And you and how you were reluctant to do it. And you said the sale went through and we were all out. It took a long time to adjust to a world without workshop. And I must admit to feeling a deep sense of loss at the time. And I wanted to ask you, because I interview a lot of founders, and one thing that obviously comes up is merging or selling or things not even working out. And I think that founders have, because I think you put so much into running a company that it is like having a child. That's how I always liken it. And when you step aside from it, so much of your identity is taken away. Now, you have said you went on and had incredible success. Um, you were the president and CEO of IDOS, which then launched, as you said, Tomb Raider, which was phenomenal. I wanted to ask you, once you left Games Workshop, the following day, you wake up, you poured your heart, sweat, tears and everything into this. How did it feel? Like, what does it feel to step away from something that you've worked so hard on? Well, I think it would have been a factor making, you know, cutlery or, or, or drain pipes. I wouldn't have felt any sense of remorse, but because it was a passion project, there was a sense of remorse for the time, but it was mitigated by the fact that Steve and I were still writing fighting fancy game books. And that's the reason why Brian Ansell would been, we'd appointed him as, as managing director in 1986, because we were running games workshop during the day and having to write more fighting fancy game books at night. So. Yeah, that could only last for so long. We did it like for three years before I realized that we were just going to fall apart. If you write writing books from eight o'clock in the evening till like two o'clock in the morning and then back in the office for workshop at nine o'clock in the morning. So there was a great sense of loss, but we were internationally best-selling authors at the time. We were going on trips around the world from New Zealand, Australia, the United States and everywhere. Um, and so we were kind of distracted by that and we're really enjoying that as well. So it wasn't devastating, but it was still sad because it had, we had been doing it for since 1975 and we saw that in 91 and it was, as you say, like a child, we'd start off from the ground up and built something around something that was our own hobby and to walk away from that was a little bit difficult, but, um, you know, when you talk to entrepreneurs, the day they sell out is, is the first day that they want to start something new. So it wasn't, you know, the, the remorse didn't last for long. And I knew I wanted to get into video games then. 
And absolutely you did. What were some highlights? So since Games Workshop, like I said, you've done so much. I mean, obviously the books are phenomenal. Over 20 million sold. You launched Laura Croft. You got a knighthood. You set up the Academy. If you had to pick top three highlights, and I know it's hard in a career like yours, but what would you say are your kind of three top highlights of your career? I think opening the first Games Workshop retail shop in in 1978 was a very big moment. Um, seeing the Warlock fight Top Mountain on the shelves of W.A. Smith in 1982 was another very big moment. Seeing the success of IDOS with Lara Croft Tomb Raider was another very big moment. And opening the school. I mean, the official opening is, is on 22nd of September this year. It's been open for two years. But it was still being a it was a thirty eight million pound um, capital building project funded by Department of Education. So a lot of the first two years are spent in temporary accommodation. So I'm really looking forward to another big moment when we effectively cut the ribbon and see the school being opened officially. So yeah, it's for me, you know, life is a game, and you enjoy all the game, not just one particular moment. Life is a game. That's quite an apt phrase for you. A couple more questions. I wanted to ask you, because we, we did briefly touch on this before we started again, that the UK have some incredibly amazing, financially successful companies, but we seem to have an issue, which I slightly apportion blame to the press, the general kind of media, but... Why is it that so many of our great UK games companies have to either sell IP to a foreign company or sell their whole business or merge? Why is it that we can't keep them here? Well, what are we doing wrong here? Well, tradition has been access to capital. Um, there's been a disconnect between the, the makers and the money. And first of all, in defense of the money, I don't think enough companies were, as I said earlier, invest already. They didn't know how to present the company to the money in in a way that was understandable. But the problem also being is that the assets of the games company are intangible. Uh, it's intellectual property, which is difficult to measure. You can't quantify the value at any particular time until it's successful. Therefore, the risk appears to be greater than other industries. But on the other side of the fence, you know, the com- country is always over-delivered in content, has always been underserved by capital because capital doesn't really know what good looks like in this space. They don't know how to assess the value of the IP that's being presented or the studio that's being presented or the opportunity. They don't understand that actually video games, the $250 billion euroed industry, there's 3 billion people playing it. It's bigger than music and film combined. And the UK has got an exceptional record in creating content. I mean, all the blockbusters you could mention that people will, that will have heard of from Tomb Raider to Grand Theft Auto to Football Manager to Fall Guys to Golf Clash and many, many others. Sadly, the common denominators that they're, own, they're all foreign-owned in that the capital hasn't been there to scale the companies to the size of the, some of the American companies, the Chinese companies and the Japanese companies. I guess some people say, well, that's good because it secures inward investment and job security. But point is that the value that is created, the profits are banked overseas. So we need to get better understanding of, of the opportunity here and the value that's created both culturally, socially, and economically to the UK PLC by video games companies. Because this country is particularly good at making video games, as from witness from the, the, the titles I just mentioned, and many others besides. So the government's done its part uh, in terms of video games tax relief, which has been a great help to get games made that would not otherwise be made. Uh, SEIS and EIS schemes are being great, tax advantageous for individuals to invest in video games companies. But I think they scale up. Um, money is where it's been lacking, kind of the, the post-seed has never been there in, in great enough quantities. I mean, that's the very reason why I became a co-founder in Hero Capital. It's a fund dedicated to video games, connected fitness and wellness, e-sports and technologies in this space. Absolutely. I was looking at your Hero Capital site earlier, and I love the way that you present the team all as kind of game characters. 
I wanted to ask you because obviously you can't take yourself too seriously. You got to. Well, I know. I was, I was trying to work out who everyone was, and then I realized it was all, all characters. Um, tell me, because you you obviously set it up because you could see that there was that gap, and you've got kind of first hand experience. What are you looking for? Because you have seen the evolution of gaming, and we're talking about not just from board games to digital, but also just the technology that we have now that has empowered so many and allowed us far more interesting companies spotted around the UK, not just in London, but all around the UK are creating wonderful companies. So what are you looking for? Where's this future of gaming? Where does it lie? The gaming industry evolves constantly because of advances in technology and it's all additive to the opportunity. So PCs early in the 80s and 90s, then consoles arrived and then Facebook becomes a platform for social games, then along comes smartphones and Apple with the convenience of the app store and a mass market opportunity then arose through millions upon millions of people playing games on their phones. And then AR and VR and then esports comes along and now everyone's talking about the metaverse as though it's some sort of new idea, but you know, games have been building metaverse persistent worlds for years as games like World of Warcraft and Fortnite, where people not just play together, they hang out together in Fortnite. You go and watch a Travis Scott in there and live in this alternate world. And then the worlds of mixed reality. So there's always something happening in, in, in technology that allows a new opportunity with its challenges for, for games players or platform agnostic to, to serve their content. So what we look for is teams that hopefully have an opportunity and recognize a, a new market and have a team with enough experience to actually operate in the world successfully. So if, when people ask me for the three most important things about a game, I will say gameplay, 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 technology and graphics, whilst vital play a supporting role. So if the game looks average, but plays well people will play it. But if it looks great and doesn't play very well, people won't play it. So it's all about the gameplay. So it's looking for companies at the forefront of the new ways of playing in connected worlds, trying to resonate with humans in an emotional way, you know, tapping into effectively Maslow's hierarchy of needs with basic needs, emotional needs and, and achievement needs and, and trying to tap into a, a global audience. I mean, there's never been a better time to make video games than, than today. In the old days of when we were launching Tomb Raider, these were premium products, premium price physical products, when you had to navigate the, the distribution channel past the gatekeepers of, of retail to finally reach a shelf in a department store to where a consumer would may or may not buy it. And if the game wasn't as good as you would hoped, they would come back in the form of returns and mess with your cash flow and, and profitability. But now through whatever digital platform you choose, whether it's a smartphone or Steam, PC or digital console, a studio can reach a global audience and the games often free at the point of delivery and upselling content and monetizing content over time as game is now a service. So the longevity of a game has moved from a couple of months at retail with physical high price products to a service-based uh, business model where it's a direct to consumer proposition and, and that can be monetized over time. So games like Clash of Clans, for example, is over 10 years old, still a major, major success story. So the whole business model changes as well as the technology as the games industry evolves and Interactive entertainment speaks to Generation Z. Everything they do is interactive. And guess what? They want their entertainment to be interactive too. Indeed. With so much of what you did, you were so way ahead of time. It's quite incredible. And, you know, I keep talking about your book, but it's so fantastic because it gives you that insight into that particular time in history and how far just the evolution of games and technology has come. I have one more question, which I ask everyone, but basically it's slightly different for you because... I wanted to say there's this boy who barely got any A-levels, who became a knight and opened a school, which to me sounds the basis of a good novel. But I wanted to ask you, Ian, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give a younger Ian? Whether it's advice you'd give him, because I ask this question to everyone and most people say that 
they would never take advice, you know, they were just gung-ho. But is there anything that you'd say to a younger Ian? I think a self-belief. I mean, I suffered a lot at school, I think, from self-doubt, being criticised by, by teachers in particular and not fitting in with the traditional. So I'd rather be a nerd than part of the nerd, I guess. But um, the thing I'd seriously I'd say is don't be afraid of failure. Failure is just success work in progress. And if you're driven by passion, which we were with Gaines Workshop, um, just just keep keep on doing it. And and don't do it for money. Money is uh, it's not the right motive to start something. If you do well at it, of course, though, you will be rewarded. But that shouldn't be the sole reason for starting something off. Absolutely wonderful advice. Ian, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Sir Ian Livingstone. And thank you to Sir Ian, of course, for his time and wonderful stories. As always, I wanted to leave you with a quote. And today it comes from the end of Ian's book, Dyson. He writes... Writing this book about events which happened over 45 years ago has been a sentimental, if not surreal, experience. All of us at Games Workshop were united by our love of games and a set of shared values. We started out by wanting to make games that we wanted to play ourselves and discovered that a lot of other people wanted to play them too. But never in our wildest dreams did we ever think that Games Workshop would become the huge global corporation that it is today a great British success story that has stood the test of time. But we are very pleased and proud that it did.